Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And if anybody would like to sit in that chair to my right during the sermon, you're welcome to do that. We can go kind of old school. So Jake, way in the back, if you want to sit there during the sermon, you're, you're welcome too. Or anybody else who beats him to it. Well, um, I'm excited about this morning's passage. Uh, I think it has a lot to teach us. It's very practical for the times that we live in. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we just thank you for your word we thank you that it has not changed, and you are faithful to keep it. And we pray uh, that you would help us to honor you and live for you uh, during these times that we find ourselves in that are challenging in, in numerous ways. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, enable us and empower us to bring you honor and glory in all that we do. And I ask for your help as a preacher word. We ask this in your name. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 4, today we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So that's where we're heading. So let me just ask you a couple questions to get us started. Uh, first one, are you ready to live for Jesus for the remainder of 2020 and beyond? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Do you feel like you are prepared to live for Jesus in the times that we find ourselves in? Are you equipped? Are you prepared to live for Jesus and do good to others? As cultural things swirl around, as the pandemic is still hanging over our head, as people are picking sides on pretty much every issue known to man, are you ready, no matter what, to put all your stock in Jesus and live for him. See, Peter this morning is writing to Christians who are in exile in what is known as modern-day Turkey to us, um, and they're under Roman rule. And most of the people he's addressing in this particular part of the letter are believed to be Gentile Christians who came out of this Roman culture from all kinds of godless behaviors and were saved by Jesus and now the threat of persecution, ostracism, um, just suffering that will come with their faith in Christ is growing and mounting. It is on the horizon. So the question is, how is Peter preparing them for what has come upon them and what is increasing? Well, we can summarize today's message and the kind of the gist of the passage, I think, in three words. Okay, you ready for these three words? You'll remember these three words. Armed and ready. We must be armed and ready. Armed and ready really is a good summary of the main ideas of this passage. We must be armed and ready. Now, when I say those three words. Some of you get really excited about that. Yeah, let's, let's grab our guns. Let's, let's get armed. Let's get ready. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't like where this is going at all. 
So what I'm not talking about is our Second Amendment rights. I'm not talking about that. I am talking, and Peter, more importantly, is talking about the call to be armed spiritually, to be ready spiritually. And the way to be armed spiritually is probably a lot different than we might think. And so he's going to prepare us um, from 1 Peter chapter 4. So the first point is this. We must be armed with the mind of Christ. We must be armed with the mind of Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So a couple of things to point out right at the outset. So the, the sentence, verse 1, begins with, since therefore. So he's referring back to something he's already talked about. What he's referring back to is chapter 3, verse 18, which says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So that's the good news of the Bible. Jesus died as our substitute, absorbed the punishment that we deserve. The righteous Jesus died for the unrighteous us, and an exchange happened. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we're covered and clothed with his righteousness. And most importantly, we have a relationship with God from that moment forward. Well, what Peter wants us to think about is that we are to put on the mind of Christ. We are to be prepared for suffering in whatever various degrees that it might come. I don't think it's a a surprise for most of us, if not all of us, that as culture changes, the the Bible and Bible-believing Christians are being pushed into a sort of a, a minority population or opinion, and with that becomes, comes more verbal persecution, more slander, more um, just vile thoughts about what it really means to be a Christian. And some of it's misunderstood, and some of it is legitimately understood, and Christians are not loved by the world at all. And that will probably increase as time goes on. And so we need to be prepared. And the way to prepare is to have the mind of Christ. Jesus suffered so that he could bring us all to himself, to the Lord. Well, we are to consider Christ's suffering. Not sure what's happening. (laughs) There you are. Y'all look good. Uh, We're to to consider Christ's suffering, and we're to make a clean break with our sin. We're not ever going to be sinless, but we're to cut off our former lifestyle when we met Christ. That's what the second part of verse 1 is talking about. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2, as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So when we trusted in Jesus, when we repented of our sin at that moment of conversion, 
We were, we were born again. We were saved. And what's happening, it seems like, to the people that Peter's writing, some of them were tempted to go back to their old sinful lifestyle. There was a pull, maybe with the pressure, maybe with the threat of persecution, with the threat of being mocked or slandered, and they were being tempted to go back. And he's saying, do not do that. Make a clean break with your past. Do not get re-enslaved to the very things that Jesus rescued you from. Do not go back. One of my prayers this morning is that for some of you, either watching or in the room, that this may be a Sunday where you have a fresh resolve and recommitment to not go back to those former sins that you were so enslaved with. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's drug use. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's sexual immorality. Maybe it's all of the above. And Jesus saved you from it. Don't go back. Don't go back. So we have to be prepared and we have to resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit to not go back. See, Jesus humbly and boldly endured suffering out of love for others. We want to humbly endure whatever the Lord has for us out of love for Him and out of love for others. We are going to bring Him the most glory when we're living in obedience to Him, and we're going to do the most good for others when we are living in obedience to the Lord. So we need the Lord to strengthen us. So if you're mocked for your faith, if you're ridiculed, if you're hated, if you're despised, if you're made fun of, or if you're just so timid about your faith that you're afraid to speak about it, the Lord wants to free you of all those things. Here's just two verses to prepare us to walk through this world for the rest of this year and as long as we would live. 1 Corinthians 4. This is particularly with, with the thought in mind that, that Christianity is going to maybe be increasingly looked down upon. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Nothing new. When reviled, the Apostle Paul says, we bless. When reviled, we bless because we have not been treated as our sins deserve. We're not going to treat others as their sins deserve. When persecuted, we endure. Endurance is a beautiful Christian word. It's a, it's a beautiful Christian grace that the Lord gives that sometimes it's just a matter of of putting one foot in front of the other. And you endure. You make it. The Holy Spirit is in us. He will ensure that we make it to the end. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We appeal. Based on the mercy that we have received from the Lord, we're going to appeal to others. And remember this, Paul writes this in Ephesians. Whenever you're in conflict with someone else, or whenever um, you're, you're being made fun of for your faith, or looked down upon for your faith, maybe it's from a family member, maybe it's from a friend that you used to do bad things with and you're trying to, to break off of. 
whoever that person is that you have in mind. Remember this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of, of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, the battle that we are in is a spiritual one. Now, there are real people that we're looking at, but ultimately, it's a spiritual battle. And so we want to look to the Lord and ask Him for grace and endurance and love and compassion towards those who may treat us poorly for our faith or may look down upon us for our faith. May we have the same heart that when Jesus looked at the crowd, He was moved with compassion. That's how we should all be who know Jesus Christ. So we must be armed and we must be ready to live for the will of God by the power of God. Second point, we have been freed to live for the will of God. We have been freed to live for the will of God. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have been freed to live for the will of God. There was a time in your life where you were unable to live for the will of God. You had no power to live for the will of God. But now, as a believer, you have been empowered. Look at verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So as to live for the rest of time. In other words, however many days the Lord gives us till we die or till He returns, we are to live. We don't have to live in the passions of the flesh anymore. The sinful desires and thoughts that seem so powerful and so intense and so maybe overwhelming at times. If you know Jesus, you don't have to give in to that. You can cut it off by the power of God. It does not mean that you will be perfect, but there should be a definitive, pronounced change from who you once were to who the Lord is making you into now. And you will be happiest, I promise you. You will be most joyful when you are living for the will of God. You will be most happy when you are tempted to sin and you resist it and you don't give in. Because we all know what happens when you give in. You have maybe temporary pleasure. Then you have guilt, remorse, shame, and the accusations of Satan himself. Oh, you call yourself a Christian. If they all knew what you did last night. And that, there's no joy there. doesn't mean God kicks you out of the family. But it does mean you're not living for the will of God. You're not enjoying the freedom that Christ has purchased for you. Ephesians 6 says this. For we do not wrestle. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Romans 6 Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, get this, we too might walk in newness of life. We too may walk in newness of life. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. To walk in newness of life. 
you really can change. You really can grow. You don't have to wait until January 1st to make another New Year's resolution that probably none of us are going to keep by February. You can actually change now because God's Spirit is in you now if you are a believer in Jesus. I met Jesus. I was saved at the age of 19 as an IUP student. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Did a lot of bad things in high school, even worse things in college. And I met the Lord in a very powerful way. And one of the surprises immediately upon trusting in Jesus and turning from my sins was the reality that I no longer had to give in to him. There was a power inside of me that was never there before. Same temptations, same friends trying to talk me into stuff, new power to turn away, to stop, to change. That power had not been there the first 19 years of my life. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit now was in me. And I could change. And I could turn away. And I could live for the will of God. That's true of all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing reality that real change is, is more than possible. It is God's will for your life as a Christian. He's going to continue in this theme. And keep in mind why he's doing this. Because he's writing to a group of people that did a whole bunch of bad things that have been freed and rescued. But time has elapsed. And so it's kind of like, you know, when you go fishing, you, you, you throw the lure back out and you just keep, keep trying. I mean, if you think about what fishing is, it's deception. It's it's what can I pull out of my tackle box to trick this fish into biting it and making him think or she think they're eating a real meal. All the while, all you want to do, catch them, fillet them, and eat them. That, that's, I mean, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to catch you, fillet you, and destroy you. I love fishing, by the way, so this is not a slam on fishing. But spiritually, that, that's what Satan wants to do especially to those who have been radically rescued. He wants to throw the lure out, get your attention, see if he can get you to bite again, and then hook you, then flay you, and then seek to destroy you. The Lord is not going to let that happen. And one of the ways he, he pulls you back is through the preaching of his word. May this be a day where he pulls you back and your eyes are open wider and wider. Point number three, we must not return to our former way of life. We must not. Not all of us in this room or watching had a colorful, wild former life, but many of us had. And he's addressing that particular group. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Basically, full throttle and giving in to whatever sinful desires and passions that human nature has. Full win. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. The, the image in this whole section is a mass of people just full throttle indulgence in any sinful pleasure 
known to man. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So let's just kind of backtrack through this. Big idea. Don't go back to the sins that Jesus rescued you from. There's a saying in Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous um, that, that makes a lot of biblical sense, and I'll explain that in a moment why I think that, is if you want to get sober from drugs or from the enslavement to alcohol, you need to change your people, places, and things. Meaning, you got to start hanging out with the people you're partying with. you got to start going away from the places that you used to party. And you need to start doing different things than you used to when you got sucked into those things. So, for example, if alcohol is your vice, sitting at a bar every evening after work is not where you're going to get free from enslavement to alcohol. It's the same place, same people, it's the same access. It's the basic idea of of the biblical call to flee temptation. We must radically cut it off. You must be radical in your pursuit of Jesus. And so if you've fed certain sins and they are so tempting to you, you just have to be more radical than maybe the average person when it comes to those sins because it was so enslaving to you. When I met Jesus as a 19-year-old and he called me to follow him, I had to be radical in the pursuit. I lost all my friends at the time. I, I had a very boring life for a period of time because I didn't really know any Christians or very few and all my friends were partiers. And I remember one evening I was walking on Philadelphia Street like 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And by myself, praying, just trying to figure out what, what does the Lord have in store for my life. And I remember my whole crowd of party friends. We were on Philadelphia Street. I was walking one way, they were walking the other. And they were all going uptown for another night of, of indulgence. And... And it was just a clear picture that if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm really going to do this, I have to go all in for Jesus. doesn't mean I look down upon them. I just knew that I was not strong enough to hang out with them and break from my sinful lifestyle. I had to be radical in the approach. See, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Memorize this passage. I have memorized this passage early on in my Christian life. And one of the ways I like to think about this passage is like exit ramps on a highway. So anytime I'm tempted with any kind of sin, according to this verse, there will always be an exit ramp. There will always be a way of escape. Now the question becomes, are we going to take it? But it's always there. So when tempted, Lord, you say that there is a way of escape. Show me the exit ramp. I'm getting off. I want to follow you wholeheartedly. See, one of the other things in this passage, verse verse 4, that is, I also 
found to be true from experience. It says this, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So I want to focus on that first part of verse 4. When and if you make a clean break from the things that you used to do, it could be the very thing that the Lord uses in somebody else's life to draw you to himself. When I was 18 years old, a year before I met Jesus, an acquaintance of mine named Matt, who later became a friend of mine, met Jesus in a powerful way. And it bothered me so much. I thought he was a hypocrite. I didn't understand. I used to go to parties and he was there laying on floors and intoxicated. And now he's holding a Bible and he's talking about Jesus. And it, it just did something inside of me that so bothered me that the Lord used. He began to convict me. The Lord began to convict me of my sin. But he also gave me hope that how I was living isn't how I had to live. That there was actually another way. And just from watching this guy, Matt, from a distance be radically transformed, the Lord did something in drawing me to himself. So as you take a stand to live for the will of God, the Lord will use you powerfully, maybe in people's lives that you don't even really talk to, just as they watch what the Lord has done in you. So be bold. Now, they may malign you. I think they will malign you. You'll get mocked. I got mocked. I, I mean, Mary and I have been to my class reunions and tell somebody I'm a pastor, and then they, they have all kinds of obscenities that, that follow it. No bleeping way. Yep, it actually happened. <laughs> um, and, and so that's going to happen. And you <laughs> maybe we'll cut that part out later. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of the word you were thinking of. <laughs> uh, but the, the point is, when Jesus changes you, he brings glory to himself. And he gives hope to others. Even the ones that malign. I was a maligner. I was a mocker. I remember as a freshman at IEP, I had an understanding of the Bible class. And we would get intoxicated. And I would stand up on furniture and preach the Bible to my friend. And we would just mock it. I would try to be like a TV evangelist. And I, I hated Jesus. I hated the Bible. And I mocked it. And then the Lord just apprehended my heart. He totally changed me. And he wants to do the same, not just in you, but through you towards others. And here's the thing that, that got me, verse 5, and has really motivated me for the last almost 25 years as a Christian is, is verse 5. I, I still can't get over verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account. In other words, anyone who does not know Jesus will give an account to Jesus. Every human being is going to answer before a holy God who is perfect, sinless, judge of the universe, and they will give an account. And that account will not be good if they're not covered by Jesus' perfect righteousness. 
And that reality has motivated me and continues to motivate me to this moment to pray for, to share the gospel when able, to plead with people that they need to turn to Jesus. And it should be, as Christians, always on our mind that there are way more people in our community who do not know the Lord than do know the Lord. Way more people. There are thousands more who do not know the Lord, who have to give an account. And the way we live in obedience to the Lord is going to make us more useful to be a means by which God uses to bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Now, some of you may not know this, but we have a lot of people in the church that have dedicated themselves to all kinds of different ministries, some in the church, some outside of the church, with a primary means, reason, motive to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And that is a beautiful thing. That is something we always want to celebrate and always want to encourage. It's a real thing that people really will go to hell if they do not know Jesus. So this should be, now let me say the whole thing before you react. This should be much more concerning to us than the outcome of the presidential election. This should be just way more concerning. I, I thought, if I live 40 more years, so if I live to the age of 84, could die today, but if I live to the age of 84, um, I'll go through this election cycle 10 more times. And we'll go up and down with everybody else 10 more times. Those of you who are much older, you've done it quite a few times already. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved and concerned about voting as United States citizens. We should. We should do it prayerfully. We should do it before the Lord, and that's a wonderful thing. But, which do you give more thought to? Reading articles about politics and what people have to say about it, being tossed back and forth with all the different opinions, or the reality that you have been given the good news of Jesus Christ, the remedy for human nature. And there's a whole bunch of people in the world who do not know or have that remedy. That should cause us to wake up in the middle of the night and pray and seek the Lord. That should cause us to go to bed thinking about the people that don't yet know the Lord. It's such a bigger thing than the presidential election in one of many countries in the world. I'm not saying the election is unimportant. But I'm saying the Lord rescued you to be an ambassador for Jesus. He really did. That's what the Bible says. The moment you were saved, you are an ambassador. You are a representative to a dying, lost world for Jesus Christ. That is your primary calling as a Christian. You are an ambassador. So may that motivate us. May that drive us into this book. May that cause us to pray and to seek the Lord fervently. May that make us bold and courageous for Him no matter what. May that motivate us 
to obey the Lord so that we can be useful, so we can be salt and light in this world in this time. Verse 6 is a little bit of a tricky one, so let's, let's walk through this. Peter says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So if you were here last week, Mark did a masterful job walking through some pretty difficult, confusing passages. This is another one. What's ironic about Peter, and we're about to start 2 Peter in a few weeks, he throws Paul, the Apostle Paul, under the bus and says there's some things in his writings that are hard to understand. I think there's a lot more difficult things to understand in Peter's writing than the Apostle Paul's writing. Uh, so there's a little bit of an apostle battle there. But let's just walk through this. There's, there's a couple different ways to understand this passage. Uh, but I think the one that's embraced by most present-day commentators is, is the right one. That's what I think personally. And you can study yourself to see if you're persuaded. But let me just uh, explain the right one. I'm not going to explain all the, the wrong ones. You can look that up um, on your own. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. So at first reading, that could sound like, is he talking about purgatory? Is purgatory really a thing? Well, according to the New Testament, purgatory is not a, a thing. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The NIV, I just want to read how the NIV translates this. Because when they translate this, they're, they're making a decision about interpretation. And, and I happen to agree with their interpretation. Verse 6 by the NIV for this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now, now being a word that's important, dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. In other words, Peter's saying that there were those who trusted in Christ, but are now dead. In other words, they died. So I got saved in 1996. Let's say I die today. And now we're in the year 2030. You could say, Joe trusted in Jesus. He's now dead. But his spirit is alive. That's what I think this passage is talking about. Uh, we'll go back to the ESV translation. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh, what that means is they died. All humans will die because of the fall of man meaning we're judged in the flesh. Christian and non-Christian will die in the flesh. Um, but that they may live in the Spirit the way God does. We are given eternal life the moment we trust in Christ. So though we die in the body, Paul says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And it seems like in context there may have been some confusion to the Christians that Peter is writing to who were in exile, and they might have wrongly thought that if we've trusted in Jesus, we're not going to suffer persecution. We're not going to physically die. They had some misunderstandings, possibly. But his whole point is, even if you suffer, even if you die, even if you die as a martyr for your faith, you will live and reign with Christ forever. So you can look that up on your own. I, I think that's what the passage means. But as I've said many times, as we say as pastors, 
We want you guys to be good Bereans like in the book of Acts who study the scriptures to see if the things that we teach are indeed what the Bible teaches. Last point. So Jesus didn't just save us from the wrath of God. He didn't just save us to be freed from our sin. He did those things, but he saved us to do good to others, to be a blessing to others. If we are walking out the Christian life, your workplace should be better because you're there. Your classrooms, whether you're in high school, elementary school, or college, should be better. Your neighborhoods should be different. Wherever you go should be better because you're Christian and you're bent on doing good to others. So let's walk through these last few verses, 7 through 11. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. So one day Jesus is going to return. This is all going to get swallowed up. We don't know when that day will come, but we need to be prepared for that day. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Everybody, or not everybody, but many people throughout history make predictions about when Jesus will return. Jesus himself said, nobody knows. Now, he knows, but we don't know. So you can speculate, you can think, but here's one thing that I'm certain of. We are closer to Jesus' return than we were yesterday. We really are. We are closer to Jesus' return than the moment you were born. And tomorrow, we'll be closer than we were today. We don't know, but we know he is going to return. We don't know if it will be in our lifetime, but the call is to be ready. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Maybe a way to think about this is we must be alert. We must not be so distracted by all the different things that swirl around in our world and forget the primary aim is that we should be thinking about the things of the Lord and doing good to as many people as we can. Stay alert. Be watchful. So, Think of, of this image in your head. So you can first imagine the, the nighttime security guard at a low-risk facility who is eating a donut. We'll just feed the stereotypes. He's eating a donut. He's watching TV. He's watching sports. It's 3 a.m., and he's not paying attention to anything, and he's falling asleep half the night. So that, that's one way to be a Christian. You're, you're in the booth, but you're not really doing anything. Now picture... We're at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and you are a soldier trained and commissioned by the U.S. military, and you are armed and ready and alert. I guarantee those guys aren't sleeping, doing head nods, uh, falling asleep, watching uh, the Washington football team or, or whoever they would be watching. They are alert and they are focused. That's how we should be as Christians. Sadly, sometimes we're more like this than we are like this. And the Lord wants to just wake us up, to be more alert. It's one of the blessings of suffering, whether it's because of our faith or because of life's trials. They have a sobering effect on all of us. They really do. They put things into perspective, whether it's suffering from physical ailments or life's trials or suffering for our faith, it really wakes us up to what is 
important, what matters to the Lord. See, the Lord wants us to be useful. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this after talking about receiving salvation as a free gift. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, he has good works for every single one of us in this room, every single one of us watching. Very specific good deeds that you are designed to do, that are unique to you. And so we want to embrace that. That's where he ends in verses 8 through 11. Look at verses 8 through 11. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So that starts with the family of God, with local churches. We should be earnest in our love and commitment to one another. Even as we disagree over certain things in politics or in the world or in theology, we have received Christ and his love. And we should be loving to one another. And that love should cover a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And why do we do this? To Him be glory and dominion forever. So as life gets difficult, and it has gotten difficult for many, we must earnestly be devoted, committed, and show love toward one another. We must show hospitality to one another in a time where everybody is tempted to circle the wagons and protect your own interests. We should be different. The, the word hospitality literally means a love of strangers. We should be willing and open and um, motivated to show kindness and hospitality to others. I want to give you a little test here at the end. Shouldn't shock you that we are in a very politically charged atmosphere right now, right? We all know that. Um, it's not just true of the presidential election. If you watch TV or have been on the internet at all, the, the local elections are alive and well with smear campaigns going both directions as well. And so, you're a Christian, right? Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus. So let me give you a little heart test here. So we're to embrace and, and welcome total strangers, to show them the love of Christ. You can work on both sides of this example. So if somebody shows up with a big old Trump hat, big old Trump mask, big MAGA t-shirt, can you embrace them with joy and love as a human being created in the image of God? Some of you are like, yeah, I can embrace them. I can pick them up, give them a big hug. Some of you are like, uh, I don't know. Other side. An I'm with Joe t-shirt. So we got, we got, we're in your neighborhood, every inch of grass 
says, Biden and Harris, Biden and Harris, Biden and Harris, Biden and Harris. Can you move with compassion for them as someone made in the image of God? Show them kindness and love. See, I think you forget and I forget how God related to us. He didn't approach us because we believe this book. He did not approach you because you knew all the truths of the Bible and you actually believed them. No, you were messy. I was messy. We were lost. We were blind. We were deaf. Spiritually, according to the Bible. And he approached us because he loved us despite us. So we don't want to use anything as an excuse to not love our fellow mankind. You do not have to agree with somebody politically to show them love, kindness, and compassion. But if you don't agree with them politically or on moral issues or on ethical issues, they're still human beings created in the image of God. They don't know Christ. They are objects of wrath. And we must be moved with compassion to show hospitality and love towards them. And then he gives us a little clause here, without grumbling. Here's your pie. <laughs> hope, you, hope you take those signs down. Uh, please take that mask off. Please lose the mega hat. Whatever your political leaning is. No, without grumbling. You know, if we live a long time, this election will be one of many that, that we forget. You know, I'm at the age, my first presidential election, I remember, be in the 80s with President Reagan. I don't remember anything before that having experienced it. I can look it up and, and see what happened, but I don't remember. And so it's really a short, relatively short window of time. Compare that to an eternity of time where you could be the one, the means that you brought somebody into the kingdom of God through sharing the good news of Jesus, through the love of Christ, even when you knew, boy, we don't, we don't agree on much of anything, at least at the start. But I'm so motivated by love and care and compassion for them that I'm going to move towards them. That, that's the point. That is the point. And so he ends this list with a reminder that we are to use our gifts and use our abilities to serve him. If this is a hard issue for you, if this is tempting for you, memorize this verse this week. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. He didn't say, oh, could you tell me your political party before, before I rescue you from hell? He didn't say, can you tell me um, the 66 books of the Bible in order of date and what's the primary purpose of each letter and book? He didn't do that. Could you tell me your stance on the end times? He didn't do that. He welcomed us through Christ for the glory of God. See, Christians, I really believe this, we have an opportunity to be really different right now than the rest of the world in how we walk through these things. Have your opinions. Have your perspectives. Vote your conscience from God's revealed word. Definitely. But be motivated to share the good news with any and all the Lord 
brings your way. Lastly, verse 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. When you became a Christian, God gave you a gift, if not multiple gifts, to use for him. One of the, the, the ideas that we love to promote here at Saving Grace is that every member should be active in using their gifts and abilities. He's given them to you. You're to use them. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's our aim. That is our motivation. That's what we're aiming for. And then he closes, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So let's stand and pray, and if the worship team can come up. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are king, and if we know you, we are part of your kingdom. We are citizens of heaven, and as citizens, we want to represent you well during these times. Holy Spirit, we pray you'd fill us, use us, um, especially in the next week and a half. Lord, use us to be salt and light in this world. And would you please strengthen us?